The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. This is Tom. Hey, and this is Ben. With our special guest, first time ever, Andy, do you want to say hello? Hello. So, everybody, uh, we're going to be doing a fun-filled, exciting episode that requires Andy to eat ice cream throughout the episode. I'm so, <laughs> fun challenge for Kyle, the sound engineer. We just wanted to throw a little obstacle in there. His job was too easy. Right. Well, Tom, how's your week been, man? Honestly, it's been a, it's been a decent week. Uh, just before I came in here, I was uh, making sure the little man got in and out of the shower. You know, got to get him ready for the school week. And I realized the most perfect song for a man to take a shower to is "Sharp Dressed Man" by ZZ Top. Well, there you I go. I mean, exactly. You can't go wrong if you're listening. And I I'm hoping that DNA, that male hormone, was kicking in. And he was like, yeah. He even picked out, you know, he's like, I want to smell like that. I'm like, that's right, you do. Well, yeah. Did a shower, did a little ZZ Top, sharp dressed man. It was perfect. Because girls go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Of course, Ben's got two daughters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll never do two sons, so it's okay. <laughs> I was say, feel free to edit that out. <laughs> Oh my goodness! So Ben, tell me about your week. What's been new? Oh, not too much, really. We're uh, just plugging away, getting ready to uh, get into flu season. It seems like it's always going to be looming around the corner. Other than that, we uh, you know we did we dressed up at the office for Halloween. My uh, mother, who's actually a nurse practitioner, also made all of our costumes, and so she thought it'd be funny to make. Uh, we were all crayons. So she made mine uh, a little dull, so I was not the sharpest crayon. So you know me, I'm going to, you know, if you're going to make me the dumb crayon, by God, I'm going to be the dumb crayon. <laughs> well, well, we we had a fun uh, time at our office. Uh, the staff mostly dressed up as Care Bears, and suddenly nobody wanted me to be a Care Bear, I don't think. So <laughs> apparently I just don't have that sunny disposition that matches being dressed up like a Care Bear. You could have been asshole bear, I'm pretty sure. Well, and the part he doesn't want you to know is the reason they didn't want him to be the Care Bear is because he only had a top half on. The bottom half was the pants on. They were like, what the hell is this, man? See, I, I'm with Andy. I'm a purist. If you're going to make me be a Care Bear, I'm going pantsless. I'm done ducking this thing the whole way through. That's right. So, Andy, how was your week? It was all right, man. It uh, It went fast, like so many weeks. I forgot to set my fantasy football team until today, and so I'm going to get beat in all my league. But <laughs> that's pretty much that's that's just normal life for me. 
<laughs> it I, makes me feel a little better. Uh, I actually forgot to sign up this year for fantasy football. I'm a little bummed. Me and a couple of the other nurses, we always played it, and it's actually something I really looked forward to, but that is one of the things I didn't miss is the constant, like, I felt tethered right. to my phone and the app. Like, I had to be checking it all the time. I think part of my problem, and Ben, ben might relate to this, is that uh, since the Cowboys tend to be so terrible now, I just I just sort of pretend like it's not really football season, and then I just forget to set my team because uh, I don't know. I, I try to just pretend like this this is not happening. <laughs> well, you know, in Ohio, even at the Buckeye, we have like whole stores up here dedicated to nothing but Ohio State gear, but they sell Cow- Dallas Cowboys uh, Ezekiel Elliott. Jerseys. That's right. That's right. Once a Buckeye, always a Buckeye. Cool. Well, before we get into our uh, stories that we may have missed, we have introduced our guest, Andy. But Andy, why don't you, uh, you're what, an award-winning author? You've been in movies. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on, right, man? I've got a lot going on. Um, yeah, I stay busy. You know, I, I'm poor, but all of that sounds really great on paper. And it sounds great when you say it. it sounds less great when I say it because, you know, people are like, he's bragging. No, I'd be bragging if I made any money doing it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I stay busy, man. Well, you could tell how well he's doing. He's lowered himself to this podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it's only uh, one more trip down the stairs from here, Andy. <laughs> so, if anybody's looking... Andy Roush is our guest, and he has written several books. And Andy, where are they available if they want to purchase them? Um, I've published with about 15 different publishers, so they're kind of all over the place. Some are in stores, some you have to get online. But the the place I always direct everybody, the easiest place is Amazon, because pretty much everything, no matter where you publish it, is on Amazon. So there you go. Good to know. And speaking of Amazon and social media, Ben... Well, since you've got social media, Tom, let's go ahead and get into that. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can reach out to us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can email us, admin, at justsomepodcast.com. Tom? And if you are going to purchase one of those books off Amazon, go ahead and use our Amazon affiliate link so we can get some of that moolah and put it back into the show. I think it's a whopping six hundredth of a cent per purchase, but every little bit helps. So click that link, make your purchase, and it helps out the show and it costs you nothing. And you can find that link on our Facebook page, or you can find the link on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. If you scroll down to the bottom, there's a little Amazon banner. You click that, you do all your normal shopping. doesn't cost you a bit extra. Kick some back to the show. The other thing that you can do to help support the show is if you tell all your friends, hey, we listen to these guys. They're kind of funny sometimes, and they do give some good information occasionally, but, I mean, not often because, you know, we have standards. But uh, let all your friends know. Let your colleagues know. Let your classmates know. Hey, this show. Also, you can share us on social media. And make sure wherever you're listening to this podcast at right now, you're giving us five stars and letting everybody know about it. You know, I keep joking that The Price is Right wants him to be their uh, intro guy. I think he's really shooting for that Alex Trebek uh, Jeopardy job right now. Right. Like he, he went above and beyond on that one, Andy. What do you think? Well, I think you're right. <laughs> Whoa, what's over here, Vanna? <laughs> hey, whatever works, you know. 
And usually we do the social media after the story, but I wanted to throw that little uh, that little zinger out there to him. Just catch him off guard, keep him on his toes. I don't want him getting you know uh, bored in this relationship. And you know he's got to be constantly stimulated. This guy over here. But speaking of which, we do have some breaking news. Dun dun dun. Yeah, we do. So our story that we did last week, well, one of the stories that we did last week, the hashtag stolen colon. The colon that was stolen from KU. Guess what, Tom? That has been recovered, and I'm sure, a hundred percent sure, that it was probably because of our podcast. Don't you think? I am a hundred percent sure as well. As a matter of fact, the douchebag is probably a listener. I'm just throwing that out there. He heard us talking about it, and he said, "You know what? Those sons of bitches, they are right." And I cannot live with myself anymore. And he returned the colon. And then he probably jumped off a building. I don't really care after that. But he did return the colon first. Yeah, they, you know, he knew that that was going to be getting out to hundreds of people in the United States and tens of people internationally. So he brought the heat of needed to turn himself in. <laughs> yes. It was actually me. I, you know, and it's funny that I ended up on the show because I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, but as <laughs> I was listening to it and I was like, first I was like, well, I got this, this colon and what am I going to do with this? And so then I figured that out. And when I got done, I was like, I think I'll just go on that show. That's pretty cool. So <laughs> see, see what we did there, people. We went full circle. We went full circle. <laughs> so. Uh, in the stories you might have missed this week, we actually have one. Uh, it's international. doesn't affect us directly here in the U.S., though you know how people are when they read stuff. They assume it applies to everybody, and therefore we're all going to be victims of this. But a former nurse in Germany admitted to killing 100 patients, making him the country's deadliest uh, serial killer since World War II. I like how they added that to the article. We have that. Yeah, Niels uh, Hagel, Hagel, eh, who cares? Niels, uh, there is 41, confessed to killing his patients. They were between the ages of 34 and 96 at two separate hospitals in Germany between the years of 2000 and 2005. He is accused of giving his victims various non-prescribed drugs in an attempt to show off his resuscitation skills to colleagues and, here's the kicker, fight off boredom. So sometimes, sometimes he's, no, I, I actually heard some other people cover this and they were in his confession. He basically said when he wanted to try and impress women or anybody, I shouldn't say just women, but he said when he wanted to impress people, I assumed women, he would send them into purpose cardiac arrest and then try and resuscitate them. And then was like, eh, if he made it or yay, if he did. So that's, that's who we're dealing with. So I'm assuming that he was not trying to impress the patients that he was giving the patients to, correct? <laughs> well, maybe the patient's families, you know, or or you got to remember that one patient member that's always asking for like pudding at the weirdest hours when you already got six other patients, that guy. He was like, oh, I'll show you what I do for a living. And then he makes someone else code. So there's that. But it also says a fight off boredom. So I want to go, what is going on in hospitals in Germany do they have proper nurse to staff rate or nurse to patient ratios? And that's why they actually have time to do stuff like this. Because I know in America, if you're on a med surge floor and you've got seven patients, you're not really fighting off boredom a lot. Right. So <laughs> there's, there's always that. So uh, Andy, what would you think if your guy was like, Hey, you want to see something oppressive? You know, <laughs> when you were a patient, well, I, do you I, think- I probably was the guy that was ordering the pudding. That in the <laughs> like, no, they would they would say they would just I'd hit the button at three in the morning and because I had weird hours and they would just come in and they go 
yeah, we already just went ahead and brought your cranberry juice in. So like that was, it wasn't pudding, it was cranberry juice. But but what would I think? Oh, I'd go, well, you know, it's more entertaining probably than anything that's on the TV in the hospital. They, they there, so, you know, I'd just be impressed that, you know, there was some kind of entertainment happening. Yeah, can you just wheel me in there when you do it, though? Come on, Niels. <laughs> Let me see it up close. That's right. <laughs> like a participation thing like you You can get some like grading from the judges on the sides you know (laughs) it'd be like uh by the way you didn't bring me the crushed ice this time and everybody knows i like the crushed ice in my cranberry juice so Mm, exactly i'm gonna complain to your chargers now you know i think (laughs) not to give anybody that's non-healthcare because we do actually have some non-healthcare listeners the funny thing to me is there are times where I really like my patient, and I know they want, like you said, 3 a.m., they're going to order cranberry juice. When I wasn't in the ER, the few months I was med surge, I, I didn't mind doing it, but I was so busy. Usually I had this exasperated look on my face, and I realized later on that they probably thought that I felt something like ill towards them, and it wasn't. I, I My job is to serve you, and I get that, but at the same time, Sometimes I'm so busy, I'm just like, okay, I get it. You want cranberry juice, and you know we're we're just working our butts off to try and make people happy. So, for the people that aren't in nursing, that's that's really the other side. You know, we we actually abhor something like this mostly because now all the nurses out there working, their job just got harder. Right? Because people are going to be like, oh, are you trying to kill me? You better count out every medication before you give it to me, so I can make sure you're not trying to kill me. Yeah. You know, I don't know what I did, but all of my nurses like really loved me. Like it's weird. And like, and I got Facebook friend requests from like all of them and still in touch with a lot of them. And it's been six months and I don't know, man. Uh, They would just say, you are the sweetest patient I have had in a long time. And I'd go, well, okay. I I don't know. I guess I was just happy to, you know, be alive at that point. (laughs) Not a transplant, but but that was cool. Well, I was going to say, at first when you started to say it, I was going to be like, it's like strippers, Andy. Oh. They're saying they like you. But then you right. said Facebook request, and they wouldn't have done that unless it was legit. So oh, Hey, and I have seen enough strippers in my life to know <laughs> when they make that face. Like, I hate <laughs> that face. I've been married a couple of times, so I've seen that face. I like you, but pay me my 20. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... Honestly, I see that on Ben's face pretty much every week when we do the show. So Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So, now that we've got all that out of the way, and I, unless you have something else, Ben, on killing patients for money or boredom. Or experiences you hear having done that, any of that. Or experience. Andy brings up a fascinating point. You know, the ER and ICU, we took it for granted about codes because <laughs> we dealt with it literally every day. Perhaps there is something to be said for the med nurse going, you know, I bet if I push this fast enough, something cool is gonna happen. Yes, he doesn't need power on to this machine the whole time, right? <laughs> Click. So let's just see what. Let's see what happens when this happens. Oh boy, yeah. And I just said, let's see what happens when this happens. So there you go, Kyle. Little more obstacle for you. And by the way, Sam, the fact checker, saying so far we are scoring a hundred percent tonight. Yeah. Big thumbs up from Sam the Fact Checker. So there we go. Well, Tom, are you ready to get into our main topic of the night? I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, we did bring in a whole... Is that what we were going to talk about with strippers? Is that the main... (laughs) Well, 
it, it was going well for a minute. I mean, right. but, you know, we did take the trouble of waking Andy up from his long and hard day of eating Cheetos and ice cream. <laughs> so we should probably actually have him talk to us about uh, transplants while we got over here. Right. So, yeah, let's get into our main topic, which is organ donation transplants. And the reason that we have Andy on is not only because, you know, he can give us some tips on strippers or some, you know, on how to write a great book, but because he's actually a transplant recipient. Isn't that right, Andy? That is. I had a heart transplant almost seven months ago. And we would all like to say a big shout out to Andy. You know, uh, he is actually friends of both Ben and I, and it meant the world to, I know for me and I know for Ben, it meant the world to both of us to see you go through this process and come out better on the other side. So big shout out to you on that one, brother. Thank you, sir. Why don't you take us through the process? Like, start with the beginning. Like, what was your diagnosis? How, what, what, what brought on the whole even getting to the transplant? All right. Um, I was in the military when I was younger, and I was uh, 21 years old, and I went to – well, actually, at the time I was 20, I went to Egypt. And this is going to sound roundabout, but there's a point here. Uh, I went to Egypt, which was fascinating, and I came back with lots of neat stories and lots of neat photographs. But what I also came back with, unbeknown or unbeknownst to me, was a virus. Uh, and that virus caused me to have heart disease or cardiomyopathy. So I was told when I was 21, uh, about six months later, that I needed a heart transplant. And there's a really kooky story there. Um, there was a mix-up. Someone was supposed to tell me I needed a heart transplant. No one did. And so I had a nurse come in or a, an assistant of some sort. And they just said, so do you want a heart transplant? And I was 21 and didn't know I needed a heart transplant. So the obvious answer for most people is, well, no, I, I, I don't really want a heart transplant. So they, so they laughed and the doctor came in and started screaming. Don't you understand if you don't have a transplant, you're going to die. So that was how I learned that I needed a heart transplant. So quick question. Was this a hospital in Germany between the years of 2000 to 2005? <laughs> it was not. But Oh, okay. Just clarifying. Just want to make sure Niels didn't get a hold right. of Andy. <laughs> so, that was a bad deal. So the doctor, did he ever bother to specify what was going on during this whole process? Well, I mean, we figured it out. We Like he told us afterward, but he never apologized or... And I mean, I only say this because I know we're talking to a medical audience, but I only say this as a reminder to everyone, obviously, how important it is that you and your patient are on the same page and don't assume, you know. Right. No, that's important. I realize he had a lot of patients. I don't know what he was going through, but uh, that was a devastating way to learn that I needed a heart transplant, especially for a 21-year-old. And and honestly, Andy, that is something I know we've spoke about before, and it's always really good to hear and, and kind of remind ourselves that, hey, just because we know what's going on or we've seen the test results, you know, perhaps we need to make sure that the patient fully is aware of what's going on and kind of make that communication happen. Right. So uh, years went by. Uh, I did not need the transplant within a year. Um, that was great. I thought... You know, like I always knew I was going to need a transplant eventually. It was in the back of my mind, uh, but I coasted for a lot of years. I did better. I got better. Didn't need the transplant. So we, you know, we go uh, 20 years into the future. And uh, a few years ago, I was 41. Uh, so that's a, that's a long way to go without the transplant. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. And um, so I started to get sick and, uh, you know, there'd always been problems, but, you know, like a dummy and like a young kid, you know, I thought it was a death sentence originally when I had gotten sick. And so I had the erroneous uh, idea or the bad idea that I was going to do everything that you're not supposed to do, because I thought, I don't know, it was a combination of I'm bulletproof or if I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to do this. So it was like a dare mission, you know, challenge accepted. Honestly, when you say that and, and Ben may be able to back me up on this or maybe he didn't have the same experience. Honestly, I felt like that sometimes uh, as a police officer before I became a nurse. Really? Like, first of all, I had to have like that mentality of nothing can hurt me. I mean, right. you can't be stupid. Like, right. I know, I know fire burns, like don't touch it. I get that. But at the same time, you had to tell yourself, but I can run through it. Right. Because, or I can drive fast 110 because I won't wreck. Because if you don't, you will never, you know, you'll never go to the call, you know, or you'll never make it to the call. <laughs> so it's funny that you say that. Like I've, I've felt that way myself, obviously for a different reason. Right. But at, but at what did you ever consider maybe going, okay, so what other options are there for treatment? Or did they just say, Hey, you need the transplant. You didn't get the transplant. You felt fine. So you just said, fuck it. Kind of that. Um, I was still on different medications. I can't even tell you what, uh, the plans changed throughout the years, but nothing ever seemed urgent. Nothing ever seemed, you know, for a long period there, uh, you know, I just coasted. It seemed like everything was okay. So like I said, there was a period, I'm not proud of it. There was a period where I did drugs and things when I was, I say younger, but some people would go, you know, 20 year olds would go, holy shit, 30 is old. Well, 30 is <laughs> not really old, but, um, but, you know, in that period, I did a lot of things I wasn't proud of and so, you know, and I smoked, I smoked, which is absolutely the stupidest thing. I should say the stupidest thing for anybody to do, but that sounds judgmental and I don't want to be that guy, but it is absolutely the stupidest thing you can do if you have heart disease. Obviously, Andy, uh, you need to listen to the short, the show more. We are, we are completely those guys. You say whatever you feel like, if right. you feel like it, you go ahead. And by the way, we are medical professionals. Whether we smoke or not, we know it's fucking ignorant. So you go ahead and just say it all you want. Right. Well, and you know what? I, I loved my cigarettes. I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people where I go, I hate smokers and they all stink and they're so inconsiderate. All of those things may be true, but I, I really enjoyed my cigarettes. But I've, I ended up, I got sick four years ago and it was almost uh, overnight, you know, um, just all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. I just went from okay to really sick almost overnight. And so I got I got, I can't remember all of it. A lot of it blurs together, but I got uh, flown to, I got life lighted uh, to St. Louis and I was told if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. So that was the first thing that was the, I smoked my last cigarette ever that day. Um, and by the time they told me that, I mean, I had already smoked my last cigarette. I hadn't known, or I might've enjoyed it just a hair more, but I uh, paid a little attention <laughs> to it and savored it. But anyway, um, so I found out I needed an LVAD and yeah, I've learned that I, I can't assume that, you know, just because uh, these are people in medical fields, they're going to know what an LVAD is, which is a left ventricular assistive device, because a lot of hospitals in a lot of parts of the country don't have any real dealings with those. They don't see them. They don't. A lot of doctors, I would have to explain to them what my LVAD was. But do you want me to say what it is and all that or? Yeah, no, 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 no. You. 
Yeah, no, you did great. Actually, um, I was just going to add on to that. You are absolutely correct. Even working in a fairly urban area now, we still don't see them a lot. And, you know, we've had to go over with ER nurses that have been ER nurses for quite a while. Hey, this guy's got an LVAD, so this is how you're going to have to, you know, do blood pressure. This is what we have to do for that. And it is a completely new skill set for most ER nurses. I know in the beginning, if I had seen one, um, I would have shit my pants because that's just like, oh, God, what's going on? Ben, did you ever get anything like that? It's a scary thing as a provider to deal with because it's like you realize that that is their lifeline. Like, Right. Well, Ben was my uh, medical provider for a long time, so Ben Ben had seen mine up close and personal. I, anytime I would have students or if I had students anywhere in the building, um, if Andy came in, I would you know grab him and say, hey, you need to come listen to this because it isn't something that they're going to listen to every day. And I wanted them to hear the sound when they you know listen to the heart or auscultate of the heart, what it sounded like. And it is one of those things as a as a newer provider that I still have not had a dedicated patient with any uh, LVAD or any other assistive device. So it is honestly, it's uh, it is scary in a way because you know you have a patient with special needs or circumstances, right. and it's something we don't deal with every day. So now I'm like, well, how am I going to provide the best care for this patient? without it being something that I know everything about. It is, it's a prospect that we just don't deal with a lot. So do you have any insight on that, Andy? Um, well, you know, I run into a lot of people. I, I would run into people uh, who would say, well, what is that? You know, and, and if people don't know what exactly an LVAD looks like, uh, it, it, there's a bag on the exterior of your body that you carry. It can be carried in different ways. I carried mine over my shoulder. It had a, a little machine in it and a battery pack. And then there's a cord that goes from that that goes into your stomach and it goes up to your heart where there's a machine that pumps in there and keeps your left side of your heart pumping. Well, anyway, what I, what I would, no one ever knew what I was talking about. I would explain it to them and they would just look at me glassy eyed and confused. But then I learned if I said the words, do you watch Grey's Anatomy? They would <laughs> light up. Oh, and I would say there was a guy on there named Denny and, and he was... Catherine Heigl's boyfriend, and and she cut the cord and he died. That's that's what it was. And then immediately they're looking at me and they're thinking, so if I cut this guy's cord, he's going to die. Like, you know, um, but, uh, you know, and I actually had nightmares about that shit after I got to <laughs> for a long time. I was going to ask that, yeah. Somebody thought it was hilarious and they sent me a photo uh, from that scene and it's a close-up of the scissors cutting through the cord. Oh, shit. Uh, I had a friend that did that and I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst joke you could ever on somebody, but okay. I thought you meant the worst thing ever was having to constantly retell scenes from Grey's Anatomy. I mean, that's what I thought you were going with. But you know what? It was usually to women, and they got really excited a lot of times. Like, oh, Grey's Anatomy. I did not know that Grey's Anatomy is sort of an aphrodisiac for women. So, okay, that's cool, you know. Um, but in that same light, I've learned, uh, you know, I, I thought I was single for a lot of the period I had that, and Dating was really hard. Like, if you think in a middle-aged man out there trying to date now after 20 years is difficult, it's really hard with an LVET. Oh, really hard. So, <laughs> you know, so if you meet them online, you're trying to figure out, at what point do I introduce this LVED thing? Because if I tell them about it in my little bio, no one is going to respond. 
<laughs> so you're always trying to figure out when do I edge this in? And anyway, you know what I've found though? What's funny is that all of the same women that did not want to be with me for whatever reasons they would come up with, it was Elved, but whatever reasons they would come up with, wanted to be with me after I got the transplant and no longer had an Elved. So I think that's pretty telling. Um, that they don't like book bags? Right. Maybe that's it. So we, so you get the Elvad. How long did you have the Elvad? And then what was the next step? I had the Elvad for a total of four years. Um, but the next step for me actually was uh, six months after I got the Elvad, I had a blood clot that was in the machine and it caused the machine to shut down. And if I had been anywhere else, if I'd have been in a, a more uh, rural location, I would have died. But luckily, I just happened to be in the major city in St. Louis at the hospital for something else. At the time, I got the blood clot. So anyway, in trying to correct all of that, they ended up um, giving medically inducing a coma. So I was in a coma for three weeks. Uh, they gave me a new LVAD. So this was already the second time that they had cracked my ribs and gone in there. And so I already had really pretty set of scars well before I got the heart transplant. Uh, but then there's so many hoops that you jump through, you know, to get to get on that transplant list because it's not easy. A lot of people don't get on it. So quick question, and, and we will go over that a little bit. I mean, yeah. some of the research for the show was on UNOS and stuff. But so what was some of the stuff, so for our nurse practitioners and everybody that's listening, what are some of the things that we need to remember about your care for someone that's on the LVAD? Like, did you have a daily regimen or anything that you had to go through? Kind of take us through, like, a little bit of that before we get into getting on a transplant list. There wasn't a lot, really, that the doctors had to deal with as far as, you know, except things like they couldn't find a pulse. There's usually not a pulse. Um, there's, there's not a, even though your heart is technically beating, there's no heartbeat sound. It, it kind of made a whirring sound, like a, like a fan. And my little yeah. girl would always, my, my little girl who's eight now, she would always listen to my chest and just be intrigued. So later, after I got my heart transplant, the very first thing she wanted was to hear my heartbeat and I, and, I, and I just bawled. I just bawled like a baby because it was so beautiful to me. Um, there's a lot of things you can't do with an LVAD that you don't think about, you know, because why would you? You don't need an LVAD. But when you have an LVAD, suddenly there are things like you can't get wet. You can't get like getting caught in a torrential downpour can be enough. It probably won't happen, but it can be enough to cause you to get electrocuted. And when you get electrocuted, it goes straight to your heart. So that pretty much guarantees that you'll be dead. Um, so you can't really, t a lot of places won't let you take a shower at all. You just do sponge baths for the entirety of the time you're on the, with the LVAD. My hospital allowed me to take showers. I would take, supposed to take one a week. I would cheat sometimes and take two because, you know, I just live life on the edge. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> electricity is no, no enemy of you. So. <laughs> just a big rigmarole, you know, like. I would have to wrap myself up in saran wrap and tape it down with medical tape. And, you know, it took 30 minutes to get ready to take a shower. Then when you get in there, you can only let the water really hit you in the back because you can't let the site. You don't want to risk water getting in there because you'll get infected. And that's a very, very bad, risky thing. Another thing is you can never swim, obviously. So these are things that you don't you take for granted. You don't think 
you know, like people would say, well, when I would say I really wanted to swim, they'd say, you just want to swim because you can't. People always want what they can't do. But I love swimming, you know, and one of my favorite memories, right? It's goofy, but I mean, it means something to me. One of my favorite memories right before I had a transplant was a day I went to the beach right at the end of the season, right after the kids and my wife at the time, who was a teacher, had gone back to school. One day I was by myself and I went out to the beach and just swam by myself on an empty beach and not the safest thing to do, but but I really enjoyed that. And I didn't know that was the last time I would swim for the next four years. One last question about the Elevat and then we can move on. What is what is your normal badly battery life and how did you plan ahead for something like that? That might be something useful for our patients if we have one with this. Okay. Um, the batteries are sort of like, they kind of look like machine gun magazines. You know, they snap in. Uh, you generally have what? You have several sets of backup batteries. You want to keep them charged at all times. You get about a 12, hour, 12 to 15 hour life on those batteries. But you want to always have backup batteries with you. You want to make sure they're charged. It, it made leaving uh, to go on long distance trips really difficult, really scary. That doesn't sound that scary, but boy, when you're in that situation, it really is. Because if you run out of batteries, you die. And not always, but most time, you will die uh, because you're on an LVAD for a reason. And you know, but uh, but I've heard stories about people. You know, uh, I was on a support group, and they would talk about people who forgot their batteries and went to a concert three hours away and couldn't get home in time for their batteries and they died. And as a fairly common thing, and it's a really scary thing. That makes it sound scary. No, I mean, honestly. I only risked really going on a far away trip once. I went to see my sister and her family in Chicago. I drove, I rode the Amtrak. I guess I went twice. I went on Amtrak and then I flew the second time. And that's always fun too, going through the, you know, because uh, the people at the like, if your doctors don't know what an LVAD is, you can rest assured that, you know, uh, the people at the airport don't know what the hell an LVAD is. And so they're, you know, is this a bomb? What is this? And and they want to they want you to hand it over to them, but it's still connected to you. So you can't really do that in the bigger cities. You know, they kind of know what it is. But when I flew out of Joplin, which is not very big, they had no clue. They were freaked out. It took 45 minutes of them examining it. And here's the funny part of that real quick. So there's a guy in the airport watching all this. And when I go to sit down after they've checked all the stuff and I'm waiting for the plane to board, the guy says, so what is all that? And I always hated that. But I say, you know, it's I basically tell him real quick what it is. And he goes, so you're going to be dead real soon. <laughs> you know, matter of factly, like, well, you'll probably be dead in a few weeks or something, you know. And so I thought, well, screw this guy, you know, and. So we get on the plane, and I can't wait to not see this guy anymore. And guess what? His seat was right next to me on the airplane, out of everyone on the airplane. So that's a fun little story. It is all- so, so you have fun with uh, Mr. Happy, right. and you talk about LVADs. And so what was the process? Uh, you said St. Louis. So obviously St. Louis is one of the 200-plus transplant uh, hospitals in America. Yeah, uh, Barnes-Jewish in St. Louis, yeah. And I'm sure they did a great job. Shout out Barnes Jewish. You're uh, so what was the process? So, okay, you got the LVAD. What was it like getting on the transplant list? It was kind of the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, it took a long time. You know, there are so many tests. And, you know, and th- this makes sense when you think about it, but it's also something that you don't usually think ahead about. 
uh, if it took too long to get all of the tests compiled, didn't, a lot of them you had to start over again. They were no longer valid. And so you would have to retake them. Meanwhile, you're still trying to do... So anyway, constantly this whole process would be put on hold and frozen. And Anyway, I finally got on the list and um, took about a year. I was on the list for about a year. I would get calls from St. Louis from the hospital, but they would be... Uh, we just want to remind you, you have an appointment in a week or something. But every time it would pop up on my phone, I would just, I would about have a heart attack. I would freak out. And, uh, and, and both of you guys may have seen this on my Facebook page. You know, I would post about it cause it was really scary. Yeah. And this happened a few times and I was just constantly afraid. And the funny thing is when I finally got the call, it didn't say St. Louis. It said Ladue, Missouri, which is a suburb of, of, uh, St. Louis. And when I got it and I saw it, somehow I just knew. Like I knew. I looked. Like it was different this time? I was having dinner with somebody and with a friend, and I looked across the table at him, and I had—I just already had tears in my eyes. He knew, and we both knew. And uh, so, you know, I answer the phone, and the lady says, uh, you know, my name is uh, such and such, and uh, we, we think we have a heart for you. And that's another fun thing is a lot of times uh, people go through all this, the highs and the lows that are associated with that. And then they go in to find out that the heart doesn't match or it's no good. It's not the hospital's fault. It's just a thing that happens. And so you never know when you're going in, if it, it's actually, you're even going to get the transplant. Yeah. And so there, I actually heard a story recently about a guy that had been called in three times on three false alerts. And then he died before he got the transplant, which, oh my God, can you imagine his family? That's horrible. sound. Yeah. Um, Andy, I have a couple of questions for you on sure. that. Did you know where you were at on the transplant list when you started? I did not. But at the end, when I got toward the end, um, they said, I, I knew I was getting close to the top because they said, we're starting to talk about your case, you know, at our weekly meetings. And I said, does that mean I'm getting close? And they said, yes. And insane. It was scary. It was remarkable. So they did. So they did at least try and communicate a little bit with you about that, or was that all you initiated on your side? Um, they were always. I'll say this: they were always very good about telling me whatever I needed to know. But I think on that particular thing, I think I initiated it because, again, you know, it's that same thing you're well aware of uh, with your jobs. But they dealt with so many people day in and day out that they didn't. All I, I, I would imagine. They didn't always remember the exact specific ins and outs at every moment of every case. So they didn't always remember what they had told you and what they had not told you. But having said that, they were amazing in every way. There is no aspect of my care any of the times I went there that I could ever complain about. So when you get the call, I mean, you're several hours away from St. Louis. Yeah, six so hours. How does that, so how does that process, do you just get up and drive immediately? Do you fly? I mean, how does that, what do you do for that? Uh, well, there, there are hospitals that require you to move and get an apartment, get a house in that area, you know, while you're waiting on the list so you can immediately be there. Uh, my, my hospital did not require that. I was very thankful for that because I didn't, I have a little girl and my, uh, her mother and I are not together anymore. And I, I didn't want to lose the time that I, cause you know, you don't know if it's going to, if it, if the transplant's going to work out. And you don't know if you're even going to make it to the transplant. So I didn't want to lose the time I had with her. And so I did not want to move. But anyway, um, they, the deal was 
the person was still alive, obviously, you know, when they called, they told me that, and I will point this out so I don't forget, uh, that when they called, they told me it was a high-risk heart, which meant there was some sort of history involving drugs with that person. They didn't exactly know the ins and the outs of them at the moment. Did I want to proceed? And that's scary because it can cause problems with the heart, obviously. But most everybody knows that's involved in this stuff, you know, if you say no to that, you may never get another opportunity. So you take it. And things have been great for me. Um, but I had I got up there in six hours. And then my transplant actually was not for another six hours after that. Did they tell you where it was coming from since it was that long of a time? I've been kind of told uh, that it was somebody in the area, like it was there. I get, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if this was actually told to me or something I assumed. Because after a while, it all kind of runs together. But, uh, you know, I think it was one of those things where the family wanted to say their goodbyes. I think the person was already in the hospital. Um, that person was brain dead by that point. Uh, you know, so the family just wanted to kind of deal with it, say goodbye in their own way, whether or not that person could hear them. I get that. Uh, they can't really tell you much about the, the heart that you received or who it's from. You wait about a year and a half before you're eligible to contact the family. The reason for that is, is so that they can mourn sufficiently and have time to sort of heal before some guy contacts them and says, hey, I've got your dead son's heart. And I, and I don't mean that to sound you know bad in any way, but I mean, that's sort of what that is. And it also gives you time to kind of deal with it also. Because, you know, there was a time where people would ask me about my donor and I would burst into tears. I mean, it, it's an incredibly moving thing to know that someone else sacrificed that. And yes, it's been pointed out to me they were going to die whether they gave me their heart or not. But the thing is, they didn't have to say that they would. A lot of people don't. A lot of people just take their, their organs into the ground. And, you know, that person or their family or whatever thought enough to help out, you know, help out somebody like me. I I can't say enough, and maybe we should have hit on that more at the beginning, and I'm sure we can do it again or for the episode, you know, go be a donor. Well, I would like to throw that in here. That's the primary reason I did that was just uh, I've since I got the transplant, I've been going around and giving speeches and really trying to get the word out, you know, because you don't see ads, really. It's weird. It's a very important thing. Why are there not advertisements reminding people to be donors? But it's a very important thing. And it's a deal where you're not going to use those organs. Like you absolutely are not going to use them. And a lot of people don't realize that one body can provide pieces of, you know, pieces of, of uh, different organs and different pieces of the body to something like 75 people, one person. That's outrageous, you know? And so I always tell I told my kids, you know, it's the, it's the best gift you'll ever give anybody. And it's also the last gift you'll ever give anybody. So you know, whether you believe in a heaven or you don't believe in a heaven, it doesn't matter. I figure leave this earth on the best terms you can. And I think helping 75 people stay alive or live better is, is a really way, a really good way to do it. So anyway, that, that's my little podium speech there. But Well, since Andy touched on it there, I do want to, you know, we'll kind of throw into some of the statistics. I mean, I, obviously his story's moving. I want to certainly get back to it. But, you know, I, I went to a couple of classes on organ tissue donation. And so there is a difference between the, the organs, as Andy said, they have to be declared brain dead or brain death, but the organs, I mean, the body remains viable while those organs, and that's going to include like your heart, lungs, kidneys, 
things of that nature. But then you can also do tissue donation. And right. the tissue donation can be up to 24 hours after the person has passed away. And that's where they get up into, the, like Andy said, the 75 people that they can can provide for with its corneas, uh, things of that nature, yeah. And again, I think Andy really hit on something that maybe we as providers need to have that discussion sometimes. Or if somebody has some questions, we need to have the answers and that is, people need to donate. I, I've joked about it before that someday, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, people are going to look at us like barbarians and go, what? You used to cut open people and transplant organs? And it'll all be different than in the future when we can just grow new organs from our own cells. But we're not there yet. And until we are, this is, like you said, we are literally have the ability to give life to other people. And why aren't we doing more of that? And I would say I had the privilege of when I was training in ICU at the first hospital I worked at to since we were assigned to a patient that was going to be a donor. And uh, I went through the whole process of drawing blood and labs and doing all stuff. And since I had a preceptor, when the transplant team came, she was like, hey, if you want to go, go like experience this, like not everybody gets to do this. So I had privilege to be there and witness this and see how it happened. And I will tell you, I actually know another person that their child received a organ donation and everybody was asking me about this and we were talking about it and I was talking about the end process and she just burst out into tears. And that's when it hit me, oh God, <laughs> I'm talking about this. Right. And her child had just received... You know, I mean, clearly it wasn't from this person. Like, right. this person was, you know, an, an adult, and her child was very small. But the point is the same, is you, I think if people saw this impact or they felt it, they it would they would come across different to them. Like you said, that they, to them it's nothing, like they don't see it every day, it's not in the news, they don't think about it, but when you are there and you're part of it, like we know Andy, I know this other nurse. Well, see, that's sort of been my mission is to give a face to it because a lot of times people don't see anybody you know or they know a story about somebody they got it but i mean they don't really see the people they don't see the impacts on their lives so they don't think about it most people are statistically are not organ donors i don't think that's to be mean i don't think it's because they're bad people i think it's because they simply don't have any reason to think about it it does not occur to them that they are just wasting organs that would save people's lives you know and unfortunately, that's that's something we as professionals have to fix. But again, it's it's that it's that fine line between it is the patient's choice. However, what are we doing to educate them to say here's here are those things? You know, what are we doing? But beyond all that, so let's get back to this for a second. So honestly, as mid level providers, we're not going to be doing a lot of surgery. I'm not worried about anything like that. So tell me about what's it like to wake up. Tell me about that part, the follow-up, the part that providers might, our level providers might be involved in. Well, real quick, before I do that, can I tell you what the doctor told me about the transplant itself? Yes, So please. this is kind of remarkable. Uh, I had this wonderful doctor, uh, Dr. Ito, uh, who, who is um, a very kind of well-renowned heart surgeon, transplant doctor, who had done many, 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 many uh, transplants. And he told me after the fact that, Mine was one of the scariest, scariest, most memorable transplants he had ever seen of someone who actually lived. 
he said maybe one of the two or three. He said when they opened me up because of the previous surgeries, the heart had stuck itself onto, because of the scar tissue, it had stuck itself onto my ribs. Well, my heart was very frail to begin with. So when they opened up my ribs, the heart fell apart into pieces. Oh, wow. And that is horrific to hear right after that has happened to you, to imagine that that has happened. But he said, you were so sick that I don't know how you were alive to come here to get your transplant. And if I said that didn't freak me out or that didn't you know, move me uh, to know I was that close to death, it, I'd be lying. It really did. But um, as far as the waking up, I can't remember how long it really actually took me to wake up. Um, my surgery took about 16 hours, and there was a break in between those 16 hours where they wanted to give my body a chance to heal or to recuperate a little bit. So I actually had two doctors end up kind of tag teaming to finish it. Uh, it was a scary surgery. Uh, I woke up a couple days later. There was a period I kind of remember. It's kind of like a movie thing where my parents were there and they were trying to trying to talk to me. And it, it was almost like, okay, imagine this. Like my eyes are closed. It's all darkness. Then they open slowly. I see them blurry. They go, Andy, Andy. Then it closes again and it goes dark. And, and then hours later, the eyes open again. And, you know, and it was weird. It was kind of that kept happening. And they, they tried to get me to talk on the phone to my sister well before I was ready. And they, and I was like, you know, and they said none of it made, you know, they couldn't make out any of it. It couldn't make sense, but I do remember doing it. And I remember trying, but there was a period where I, here's the fun part. I had no idea that this is something that actually happens a lot with transplants, but your body goes through so much trauma and you're on so much medication that it is a thing that frequently occurs when the person starts to believe that the nurses are conspiring to kill them. And you know how I know about uh, this? Because this happened to me. I absolutely wow. believed, and I remember believing. I can't, you know, get in that mind space anywhere, anymore where that makes sense. But I remember being very afraid that my nurses were conspiring to kill me. And yeah, that's ludicrous. But I was in that crazy mindset of after all these things. And I tried to convince my mother, I'm going to die tonight. And when I do, I want you to know who's responsible and it's that nurse. And I pointed at a nurse. This is true. And, and and I hurt this nurse's feelings, even though she'd been through it. Like I made her cry. And I uh, I feel horrible about it, you know, but I, I didn't know. I was out of my mind. Was her name Neil? <laughs> was she German? I'd be dead if it was that, that person. <laughs> well, you know, um, to be fair, though, Andy, I think every nurse and actually we covered this not that long ago um i think every nurse has been i don't want to say verbally assaulted like you like you said you were in a mind space because of medication and everything we actually hear worse from people that are mad because they had to wait for ice water so 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 if you feel bad i i get that but at the same time i hope i would think that those nurses are prepared and expecting that so you, so tell us a, a little bit, you know, about like, what was the rehab like? Like what, what regime did they take you through while you were in the hospital? Uh, I'm trying to remember a lot of this is foggy and it's weird. Like even, even before I got the transplant, I blocked out a lot of that. So there are periods of things where I don't even remember them because my brain is, was just trying to, I don't know, protect me, I guess. And, but afterward it was, there was none of that, but it was just, there's a lot of it that's kind of foggy. 
I suppose some of it's the medication, some of it's the recuperating. I don't really know what I did for a while. I There was a period where they would uh, have me walk. And, you know, as anyone that listens to this will know have, from having been around a hospital, if a person stays in bed for a few days, it becomes increasingly hard for them to, uh, they, they begin to lose their mobility, I guess is what I want to say. And uh, I had already been in the coma the, the years before. And after three weeks, I couldn't walk. You know, I had to learn basically how to walk again. So we skip forward. I get the transplant and I could only take a step and I would be trembling and I would have to sit back down and they would say, you know, the goal is eventually we're going to walk all the way down this hall. And that sounds like normal stuff to you normal people. You know, I, when I think about it now, it's ridiculous. But at the time, it, when I looked ahead, it looked like it was a mile away. I couldn't imagine making it there. And little by little, I got there. But my, <laughs> I had some great therapists. But, uh, you know, I dreaded when they came around because it meant I was going to have to do this work. That it was going to be embarrassing. And, oh, it was embarrassing to have friends and family around and see me take two steps and be worn out and have to sit down. And I think it's important actually for us to hear this because again, being on the other side, being the nurse or the practitioner, our you know brothers and sisters that are practitioners of hospitals, it's, it's sometimes we lose sight. Like we know we're supposed to do this and we know the reasons why, but to actually hear a patient say, you know, I know that this is bad for me, but I know why it's good for me also. And, and it kind of reminds us, hey, we are doing this. Like, this isn't just the latest data says you need to do this so they don't get right. pneumonia. I want to actually hear someone say, you know what? I didn't get pneumonia. And right. you know why? Because you made me do something I didn't want to do. And that's important for us all. Well, and, you know, they do that thing where you have to blow into the little thing and make the, the, the ball go up and down. And you know what? Yes, the incentive spirometry. Yes, and I, was, I had so little strength that I could barely do that. The thing wouldn't even move. And. You know, and, and like I said, and my physical therapist was amazing. We're still friends, and she is amazing. And, and, you know, it's funny. She was the same physical therapist I had when I had gone gone in and gotten the coma, had the coma. And there was a period where I hated her, not because she was bad or anything, but, man, I thought she was like a drill sergeant. Like, I, I think when I was kind of out of it way back when, when I had gone through all of that, I think I yelled at her even, my parents told me. And I don't remember that because I was really out of it. But we became great friends, you know, because she is absolutely the best at what she does. She is amazing. And when she comes around, yeah, you're scared because you know you're going to do work. And she's going to ma- she's not going to take, no, I can't do it for a for an answer. She's going to make your ass work. And, and I'm thankful she did because she helped me get back on my feet a lot quicker than I would have. Honestly, we don't give enough love. I try and give love to respiratory therapy departments everywhere I go by telling them I know they all wish they were nurses, but that's just because my wife's one, and I feel like I could say that. But those PT people, they really are sadists. Yeah. Though you, you were actually onto that. What you don't know is that's part of the entry program. You have to admit to being a sadist just to get into that program, Andy. Yeah. So it makes sense now that you said that. Well, you know, I had some that I knew I could get over on. You know, like, I mean, I would legitimately be tired when I said I was tired, but there were times I knew I probably could have pushed a little further. But when I would have this one particular therapist, her name was Miriam, and she was amazing. She would not take no for that. She wouldn't listen to that crap. And, you know, and and I'm so thankful. All of my nursing staff, like everybody that was there, was amazing. Seriously. Like, I, I went and I talked to a class at high school recently um, where they it was a jobs class, and people were thinking about becoming doctors and nurses. And, and I just went in to sing the praise of these people to these kids and 
people people don't sometimes think about really directly the impact that they have maybe on patients' lives. But you know, it's funny. My my surgeon that did the the, the bulk of my transplant, and he was the same person that had done the uh, the two LVADs. He literally saved my life multiple times. And you know what's funny is when I would see him, yeah, he's just a regular guy. Yeah, he's just some dude that works at the hospital. But you know what? When I saw him, it was like that little girl that sees Bruno Mars and bursts into tears. I looked at that man like he was like Elvis walked in the room, even dead Elvis. You know, like how miraculous would, would that be? But that's how I felt when he walked in. I was just overwhelmed. That man is a hero as far as I'm concerned. Well, to be fair, that's pretty much the reaction I get everywhere I go. I don't know about Ben, but when I come in a room, that shit happens. Said, it's like when Tommy Schwab's into a room and everyone bursts into tears. But really, they burst into tears because Tommy's there. That's it's not a good thing. It's because like they're like, oh shit, my day is ruined. But well, yes, exactly. That I was saying, yeah, that's exactly what it was, Andy. Because we've both experienced that, yeah. Oh yes, I, as as friends of mine, you are definitely going to be in the crosshairs at some point. Like I, I, I try and pride myself. I'm fair to everybody. I hate you all. So <laughs> there you go. So Andy, we've heard the story. Yeah, you know, and we're going to get into a couple of things. I mean, obviously, we don't want to let you go just yet. But is there anything else about this process that you want? the doctors, the nurses, the providers, or remember, we have some non-healthcare listeners. What is it that you want people briefly give us, you know, a, a summary, a synopsis of this and say, this is what I want you to know about me or my story. Uh, I don't really know. I just, um, and there you go. That's it. You don't know. know. So <laughs> it's amazing. You know, like it's sort of like, I, I'll post a lot about the stuff that I kind of do in my career and people go, people think I'm bragging. No, I'm not bragging. Or And it's the exact same thing with the transplant. Like, no, I never brag. What it is is I'm overwhelmed that good things happen to me. And when they happen, and it's especially so, because I don't, I'm like a lot of people. I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't think there's anything special about me. And it's especially so with the transplant when I see little kids that die. And I think, why am I here and they're not? But you know what? I'm thankful. I'm thankful every day. So, if hey, if you want a, some kind of thing, a caption that sums me up, I'm happy. I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy to be here for my children. I think there it is. Hashtag happy to be alive. There you go. And so, go on, Ben. Say it. You've been quiet this episode. Yeah, I was letting Andy talk. I wanted to hear his story out there. I'm sorry. I no, That's much. what we brought you here for, man. So, I just wanted to kind of talk about a couple of myths. I know we talked a little bit about this, but, I mean, I just wanted, you know, I was wondering, because I had... It, when I was doing research for this episode, like 95% of the population s- says that they support organ donation, but only like 35% are signed up as organ donors. And so I did research to find out, well, why the hell is that? Um, and so some of the myths that I found, and I think we should take a few minutes just to kind of debunk those. First was that I have a medical condition, so I can't be a donor. That's not true. That is not true. No, it might be true for certain organs, but there are so many other things in your body that... Even in that situation, again, you've got skin, you've got ligaments, you've got eyeballs, you've got so many things that you can give. Even if you've got, say, one, you know, a problem with your liver, a problem with your kidneys, that is not the, that's not everything. So the next myth that I found was that you're too old to be a donor. Now, hold on. That's a myth, but 
according to Yunos, the uh, let's see here. I want to make sure I get everything exactly correct here. Hold on. According to Yunos, the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is pretty much the clearinghouse, right? Like they're the overall umbrella of this. They said that basically this is up to the transplant center. Uh, they're, what they have is another network under them called the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network. And they're the governing body and policies under UNOS. And they said that is up to the individual hospitals. There are hospital systems where they say if you are, and I'm going to throw a number out there. I'm not saying this is legit for anybody, but let's say you're 80. They're like, nope, we don't take anybody over 80. That might be a hospital's individual policy, and UNOS will abide by that. What I found on organdonor.gov is that there's no age limit for organ donation. Actually, to date, as of the website being updated, the oldest donor in the United States was 93 years old. Yes. Again, and I and Andy, I don't know if you have any info on this, but basically that's what UNOS said. UNOS is like, we don't have a age limit. There is no age limit according to UNOS. Right. But – like, let's say the individual transplant center can accept you or deny you based on limits that they set. And that may be one of them, age. Well, and I think another thing here, you know, to remember is that, you know, now they're they're starting to do uh, these penis transplants. I don't think many people really are going to want a 90-year-old penis. I, I'm i not even sure 90-year-old women want a 90-year-old penis. I don't know. It's just a thing. I've <laughs> And you know what? You've heard. I want to know what magazine you're reading. Where well, this is a topic of discussion, Andy. What uh, what magazine was that? What website were you on, Andy? <laughs> right. I think it was your Facebook page. I'm not sure. I, you know, uh, you know I, I told Ben this the other day about something else. You know, like whether it's a good one or a bad one, doesn't matter. If I see an opportunity for a joke, I make it, and that's just. Oh, oh no, no, that was a good one. I, 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 I problems in my life, but. Hey, that's just that's just how it is. No, I dug it. That was perfect. That was good timing. Ninety-year-old penis. I see another hashtag. Maybe in well, certainly it's something I'm. I know Andy has tweeted before. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, ninety-year-old penis and hashtags with Andy. Uh, just it just it's. Have you been going through my bookmarks? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I see a lot of likes, and for some reason, ninety-year-old penis keeps coming up. I don't get it. So, you know, one of the ones I want to talk about, and we talked about it a little bit pre-show when we were prepping all this, was if I donate or if they know I'm a donation, uh, organ donator, that they won't work as hard on me, which I could tell you, and I, I know Ben's going to back me up here in a second, as an ER, as a trauma, and as an ICU nurse, it could not be further from the truth. Right. We individually, every life to us is the one that we're working on. I am not planning ahead for you for anything. And to be completely fair, I will tell you that 10, we don't even, I, I don't even want to say nine times out of 10. I'll say 99 out of a hundred. We don't even know this. Like none of this information. I do not care about any other information other than get this person alive, get them, you know, get them intubated, whatever we need to do to get them cared for. Generally, it's after we have got them on a ventilator or something like that, that the family members are there this may become, may, and I do mean may, may become a conversation. But like I said, I honestly, I, I have never, ever, ever during a code been like, hey, is this guy an organ donor? It's never happened. Yeah, just gonna... All right, cool. I'm going to go drink a coffee. You know, in, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, in the 12 years that I've done ER, either nursing or practitioner, 
and probably the thousands and thousands and thousands of patients that I've met, never once has the question come up, are they an organ owner? That it, 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 it's, it's not even feasible in the mind. Now, I understand that to those outside looking in, that may be, but I can assure you that has never, ever been the case. No, and and I mean, and that extends realistically to everything we do within the ER, and like I said, by extension, the ICU, if, they, if we get them up to there. I am worried about you as the patient. I, I don't need to know anything else coming into it. You know, I mean, if there is a medical history, that's great. That helps me do my job. But to be completely fair, oh, this guy is a bank robber. Guess what? I have never fucking asked that once, you know, coming into, I need to know why he's in my ER. Oh, he was on a motorcycle and he wrecked. That's all I need to know. Like, I, well, I need to know everything you can tell me. What I'm saying is, is everything related to his medical health never has, look up his, his ID. Is he a donor? Has that ever come up zero times? Zero times have we ever asked that. So I, it's almost, it's almost not only is it repugnant, but it's almost like a, a black eye on us. Like, why would you even assume that's what we're looking for? Of course we want organ donors, but that's not how we want them. Yeah. So I, I, I only hope that people listening really make sure to focus on, hey, we want you to be a donor, but that does not affect your medical care in any sort of way. So that's a big myth for me that I'm glad we shot down. The other two that I just want to talk about briefly, family won't be able to have an open casket funeral if they're a donor. That is not true. Uh, throughout the entire donation process, the body's treated with care, respect, and dignity, and open casket funerals are still possible. The other one is the family will have to pay for the donation. That is no, that is not true either. There is no cost to the donors or their families for any organ or tissue donation. Now, I will say, I have asked before, does this guy eat ice cream late at night during podcasts? Because if he does, right. that guy is no-go for me. Like, I, Does he have a book bag with a life-saving device in it? Because if he's eating ice cream and doing that, I'm not working on him. Yeah, he's out. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that's the Andy special. That's what I'm going to start calling that one. So, Andy, actually, I was going to throw in here without saying anything controversial, but oh. you know, we, we did talk about the other one as far as the no, say it. There's that other myth, uh, or I don't know, a myth, but there's a concern that a lot of people have uh, that are religious. Uh, they're afraid, and I've heard it time and time again. People are afraid that if there's a rapture and they've given their organ, they've donated their organs, that God won't be able to put them back together to take them to heaven. And, you know, like I'm not a particularly religious person. It doesn't matter. But I'm just saying I'm not a particularly religious person. But I believe that if there is a person who can create someone out of nothingness and is all powerful and can do anything, I don't think this is something that he can't handle. You know, like I don't think he's going to say, well, you helped out 75 people. Eh, we just move on to the next guy. I kind of doubt that would be a thing, but no, no, I don't know. No, I doubt that. And honestly, first of all, yeah, I, I think me and Andy, we've talked about our belief systems before. So without getting into that too far, without making people pissed off, if you are on that fence and you are the person sitting there going, or you're the provider and you have a patient that's on that fence, why don't you say to them, hey, you have, you clearly have a religious leader. You know, you have some resources to go to. Go talk to them. See what, you know, what is going on. Because as far as I know, there are very few. I mean, there are actually a couple that are anti-donation. But right. most, by by far, most religious organizations are pro-donation. 
Well, I've been thinking about reaching now that I'm speaking to groups of people. I've been thinking, really considering reaching out to churches because I feel like if, you know, like I, I had a pastor, if there was a pastor that was, you know, would co-sign on this and would allow me to speak to his congregation and it's something that he told them was a good idea, I think you'd have a lot of people sign up to be an organ donor. And I, I, I it just occurred to me a couple of days ago, but I really think this is something, you know, that's, that's a, a, a viable option. Something I want to try, I, and I agree. And I think, like I said, I I believe most uh, mainstream religious organizations do not have anything against donation, or are probably pro uh, donation. And so maybe if you are taking care of a patient that has this concern, that it is a afterlife concern, they have resources that they can go bring peace to their own decision before they make you know before they make that decision to not be a donor. Encourage them to go speak to that religious resource, clarify it, and then they can, you know, make their decision in peace. So I think that's a great thing. So let's see here. Is there any other myths? Let's see. We we struck out ice cream. That's good to go. Um, Don't smoke. I mean, is that? Do what? Say that one more time. Oreo ice cream. Can we make an exception for that? Or obviously, and mint chocolate chip. If mint chocolate chip, you are in like Flynn. If that's in play, then we're okay. Yes. Okay. Exa- oh, if see, we're rhyming. That even, that even sounded intentional. <laughs> Poet and didn't know it like they used to say. Exactly. Yeah. yeah there we go. Uh, ben, is there anything else? I was just going to wrap up this episode with uh, some statistics. There are currently 115,000 men, women, and children that are awaiting life-saving organ transplants. Every 10 minutes, another person is added to the national transplant waiting list. 22 people are dying each day because uh, the organ that they need is not donated in time. So, you know, I think Andy has said it. We've said it. Be an organ donor. You can go to organdonor.gov and sign up there. I'm an organ donor. It's on my license. Yeah, they just ask you when you get a driver's license, do you want to be an organ donor, yes or no? You say yes, you say no, problem solved. And, and it is not it is not that hard to switch. So you can the most state websites have a little thing where if you said no initially, you know, you can go ahead and click that box and go through the process and it's not hard to update all those uh those roles. And again, no matter what it says on the license, if you change your mind you know, if you make your wishes known to your family, they can always let that be known to the hospital staff at that time. So there's many, many ways to make this happen. But since we talked about a social media link, Ben, what does that mean? All right. One last time. You ready? You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can reach us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com. Or you can reach us on admin at justsomepodcast.com. Oh, look at that. I mean, that silky smooth voice. It's, you know, it's almost, I think the word for me, I'm going to use Andy is I'm going to use the word delicious. Like when he says that it's, it's, it's my personal bowl of Oreo ice cream. I'm just saying. Yeah. So Andy, uh, we're wrapping up. Do you have any last words? Not really. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks Andy. And, uh, I will say that you can certainly, Reach out on Amazon and get all of Andy Roush's books there. Um, I've read several, several of them and enjoy them quite a bit. So, And everybody that orders at least 25 books of my books, uh, if you send me a message and tell me you have ordered 25 of my books, 
I will send you a quarter in the mail. <laughs> a quarter in the mail? That's right. Well, it's like a re- rebate, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I can't say enough to you, Andy. It has been honestly amazing to have you on. You know, this is one of those things that when we talked about it, we were like, you know, we try and do stuff that's mid-level provider, you know, advanced practice provider level, and obviously transplants aren't something we're going to be doing every day. But, you know, we know you. The story was so amazing. We just had to get this information out, and I am so glad we did. It has been just an awesome experience to have you on the show and just – It's been my – I've been on a lot of podcasts usually to talk about my writing, but this is the first medical podcast I've ever been on, so you have that distinction. Oh, now I'm because I'm, I think I'm going to become a full time medical uh, podcast guest. I'm just going to be on all of. Them. Yes, well, you have never been on a non award winning podcast like this, my friend. We yeah. are we are the creme de la creme. I'm trying to, <laughs> right. yeah, like uh, I'm trying to say, you know, we're we're the top. There's there's nothing bigger than us, my friend. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, by the way, I messed up creme de la creme on purpose. I was trying to say it with an accent, but I fucked it up horribly so uh sam the fact checker and kyle the sound engineer can edit that shit out later on or something so uh ben do you have anything else i don't well uh for tom i'm getting off here it's been a blast and this has been everybody have a great week